This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and Asia Pacific editor Damon Evans. And we've got plenty for you this week, particularly looking forward to Ed's tale about uh, pirates or near piracy. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, before we get into that, though, we'll uh, dive into the latest that's been going on with the energy crisis. And it's been a well, it's been a busy old time in the UK, particularly in Scotland, where uh, both the Prime Minister hopefuls uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have been kicking about this week across Aberdeen and at a hustings in Perth. And we'll talk about that. But to, to rewind a bit, firstly, perhaps this week we had uh, Labour announce proposals to backdate the windfall tax, which was announced earlier this year, and backdate that to January for North Sea oil and gas firms. And with that, freeze the energy price cap for a period of six months. So um, we'll talk about the industry side of that. I suppose what is very important to preface that with is that obviously we'll have these, we've got these really shocking predictions for energy prices uh, in household bills in the UK, which were on average £1,400 in October, and they are projected to get something in the region of to you know, £4,300 by this coming January, which obviously spells fuel poverty for many uh, households across the country. So that now said, uh, how is the industry uh, thinking about this uh, proposal from Labour? And there's been criticism there over how you fund this uh, £29 billion plan. Some saying, uh, I believe including Liz Truss, that this would be a temporary fix. There's obviously uh, no guarantee that oil and gas prices would fall by the time this uh, plan runs out in you know six months' time, and if it was extended again, uh, you know to a year, for example, we've got uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies saying it would cost something in the same ballpark as the furlough scheme. So, you know, clearly, uh, you know, you say something often enough, and it does tend to um, shift perceptions, perhaps, uh, and become a fixture in the public thinking. I think that's probably what happened with the windfall tax. Uh, first being announced earlier in, in the year, we did have a lot of uh, politicians promising isn't going to happen, isn't going to happen, and then of course just uh, giving way to, to pressure. So Labour's plan, as I say, backdating the levy to January. Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has said this won't impact investments. Uh, these are profits oil companies didn't expect to have, um, which is true, but they also didn't expect a 65% a tax rate when they made their economic plans either. So. Some angst in the industry there, um, the trade body OEUK saying such revisions would cause untold damage for the industry, more firms might leave, we might become uninvestable, more reliant on foreign imports, and I hear that, I do. Um, we certainly would be in a much worse position if we didn't have a domestic energy industry, we would become more reliant on imports, and what would that do to cost? Clearly we've got to recognise that. And this is where I'd be quite interested in hearing you guys' thoughts as well, because it feels almost to me... If we're going to say things like untold damage, it almost feels like there has to be something to back it up, uh, to hold water against the, the political weight of the arguments going the other way. As I, I mentioned earlier, the, the prices that households are facing and, and the fuel poverty, you know, as, as the tax stands currently, we've heard about how terrible uh, windfall tax will be for some, but for some others, it's going to accelerate investment. Look at Equinor recently kind of progressing their environmental statement for the, the £8.1 billion Rosebank project the other day. That's great for the industry. I don't think it necessarily sends the, the message in terms of the windfall tax being damaging per se. So, you know, as, as I say, windfall tax, good for some, 
not so good for some others. Um, I think really you need an operator pulling out of something massive like a Rosebank or a, or a Clear South or a Cambo citing the windfall tax specifically in order to kind of drive that message home. And of course, you know, uh, we've, we're now kind of down the line. We've had another set of financial results. Are we going to be back here again when the next set of results come back out in, in October? Ed, do you think we're going to have this kind of rolling argument here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly there's 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 no chance that these, uh, I mean, I think as long as energy prices are high, it's going to be a, a, an incredibly hot political issue, right? And I think, you know, it's that thing where, you know, you go into shops and people are talking about it, right? You're in the pub, you hear people talking about it. So I think, you know, Everyone, I think, in the energy industry would prefer, much prefer, to be the sort of the boring topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. The point when it's the kind of the this kind of the scandal of the age is, I think, you know, quite quite a worrying point. And I think it's also, I think it's worth saying also that it's not just households, isn't it? Indeed, it's also yeah. small businesses, right, who aren't who aren't protected by that that sort of price cap. Who you know are, are looking at a really difficult situation when obviously, uh, in fact, the, the entire economy, right? We've got energy prices going up, mortgage prices going up. You know, the Bank of England is obviously you know worried about inflation, and I think that there is going to be clearly a, a, a knock-on impact. And I think obviously politicians have to you know do something. Uh, the, the the terrible uh, answer is that there's not a, a really kind of a, a clear solution. I think. You know, energy companies have clearly sort of benefited from, uh, from from high prices over the last, what, six months, 12 months. Uh, but, you know, those in, you know, investing in new fields doesn't immediately produce new production. And they're all also at a point when they are increasingly, you know, keen to return cash to shareholders, dividends, buybacks, whatever. So, I, I mean, it's, it's just at a point where... If you're an energy company, there's no good way to say this is what we're doing to solve the problem, unless you, you know, take take this kind of the the position of say, you know, Total in France saying we're gonna, you know, literally step in and and, and cut fuel prices. Which, you know, if you're driving through France, as as many people will be, uh, you know, given the summer, you will you you will you will stop and there are, there are stickers on 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 fuel pumps in in uh, Total Energy's uh, fuel stations uh, throughout France saying, you know, we've 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 cut prices for this reason. And we should maybe say that. It's within the gift of certain companies in Britain to do that, but they've chosen not to. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's it's it's, a th- and I think you know, I think as as you rightly say, I think you know, is it is it fair to you know sort of wallop the energy industry so that it kills future investment? Possibly not, but at the same time. Is it is it tenable? Is it sustainable for 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 people? You know, looking at bills, you know, doubling household bills, doubling. Uh, you know, company bills. You know, I've seen some extraordinary numbers, sort of, you know, five hundred percent increases. Uh, you know, kind of yeah. that that some companies are looking at. So, I mean, it's it's a tough position. I think I think you know, really, the the kind of the worrying thing is the conservatives who seem to be saying that they just lit, they just don't seem to be ready to take action, do they? I think that's the thing. Those the, the two kind of leadership candidates don't seem to be willing to embrace some sort of uh, change in, in, in the way that we need. And it, it feels like we're running out of time. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and as I mentioned there, uh, we did have Liz Truss and, and Rishi Sunak uh, at the hustings in Perth this week. Uh, and obviously this concept of the, the price cap came up um, and, and Sunak uh, more or less ruled out freezing the price cap. Uh, Truss seemed to suggest it was a short-term fix, uh, not particularly attractive from her perspective, but 
ultimately, I suppose, didn't rule it out. Um, yeah, got to do something. Um, and you can see why Labour are pushing this as hard as they are, because uh, it's clearly not a time that we can we can sit on the fence. Interesting about the small businesses point, uh, Ed, I mean, there's been, there's been a, a story in Aberdeen that's been really doing the rounds. Um, there's a, a Chinese takeaway here that was hit with a, a £10,000 gas bill, 10 times more than usually, oh, and they've had to close. They've had to close and they've been around since the 1980s. Right. Um, and that's been the story for a, a number of others. So it's just, it's just, it just hits home. As you, as you say, you know, the price cap is there for households, but, you know, for, for small businesses, this is a, it's a different matter altogether. Uh, and it's difficult to see how they'll be able to, to front that. For many of them, it's, it's worse than the, you know, the hospitality crash during COVID. So, yeah, how, how are they going to handle it? And then, and then yes, energy bills uh, for households, you know, set to increase threefold by January compared to the October of last year. So I'm sure many are, uh, you know, even people who are not in, you know, the uh, a poorer household, you know, middle-income households are, are, I'm sure, considering how they're going to be able to pay for, for that. Damon, I mean, we've got inflation at a 40-year high here, and I, I'm sure similar issues are, are felt over where you are, what's what's the picture like in Indonesia as, as you you know grapple with these kinds of, of problems too? I, I think it's slightly different. I mean, when you, when you uh, you guys were talking there, what what came to mind particularly was on the the fuel price at the pump, and um, and I think consumers or you know people in the UK or France or wherever have been paying the equivalent of nearly two hundred dollar per barrel oil at the pump because it's been the refining capacity that has been squeezed. Globally, so so even though crude has been what hundred hundred and twenty dollars a barrel, the price people are paying at the pump is excessively higher because because there's not enough cracking capacity to tra- transform the crude into gasoline or diesel, etc. Uh, in Indonesia, the the pump is subsidised. One fuel is subsidised, one is not subsidised. And I filled up my car the other day with the unsubsidised petrol. It's nearly nearly twice the price, and um, so. People that have a lot of money or drive, you know, the best cars in Indonesia can get the subsidized petrol. Anyone can get it. So that's not a very fair kind of subsidy. And that's what strikes me with this energy price cap as well. You know, the poorest people should really be supported. But if everybody's getting support, then demand will probably remain the same. And at the end of the day, the cure for higher prices is more supply. And well, higher prices encourages more supply. But if they're artificially intervening and everybody benefits, then, um, you know, whereas really the poor people and perhaps support an industry like you mentioned the small businesses um so a very different picture here in that sense and also gas prices are capped here for industry at about six dollars per mmbtu to protect um you know to make them to 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 keep them competitive so quite different Mm, indeed indeed okay i'm sure we can talk more on that and i'm sure we will um but let's kind of park the uk picture there and next up we'll stay with indonesia where damon will be talking about one of the world's largest undeveloped gas resources Energy Voice presents Future Offshore, a free hybrid event at the Chester Hotel Aberdeen on Thursday the 25th of August 2022. As the transition gathers pace, join me, Alistair Thomas, and the industry leaders to shape the offshore agenda for the North Sea, ahead of ONS 2022 in Stavanger. The event will feature three sessions. The first is on energy security. The energy industry must meet critical production targets whilst making the transition. As a tough winter approaches, what are the options? Session 2 looks at the North Sea as an energy transition frontier, exploring decarbonisation in the UKCS and Norway. Where are comparisons appropriate and what can each learn from the other? 
Finally, session three tackles the skills transition. What steps are required to reach the jobs and investment levels to ensure longevity of the offshore industry? In-person tickets are limited, but whether you want to join us virtually or physically at the Chester Hotel on 25th of August 2022, you can register free at future-offshore.co.uk. Okay, so Damon, some going on here for the Abadi LNG project. Just uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening there. Yep, so some more uh, political interference in, on this side of the world. Um, in Indonesia, there is a, a, a giant undeveloped gas field called Abadi, operated by Japan's Impex, and Shell is also a partner with a 35% stake. Um, recently, uh, the Japanese Prime Minister and the President of Indonesia met in Tokyo to discuss ways to push this, this stored project forward. Um, it's had trouble getting off the ground for perhaps almost a decade. And what is kind of holding up progress now is that Shell wants to divest its 35% stake, but there are not really any takers. So. The, the, the government of Indonesia is pushing uh, its national oil company, Pertamina, to buy this stake. And Japan are offering, well, well, it's reportedly offering to lend the money to Indonesia to buy Shell out of the project in the hope that it would kickstart development of this, this huge gas field in the Masala block offshore Indonesia. And um, the idea being that the gas will be developed as LNG for, for export and also for domestic use. Um, the, the the difficulties with I mean there's the, the, there's a lot of difficulties with this project I mean initially it was a floating LNG project that's why Shell got involved um, probably eight nine years ago it was approved the development plan was approved by the Indonesian Energy Ministry around 2015 2016 I believe and the Indonesian president uh, Joko Widodo known as Jokowi locally. Uh, vetoed this this plan it was all ready to go so ironically if that hadn't happened the project would be well on its way to being developed and perhaps even producing LNG as we speak today mm. so um, when he vetoed that that created a lot of a lot of uncertainty in the Indonesian upstream sector not just for this particular project um, since then um, Shell and Impex argued FLNG would be much cheaper uh, they estimated it would cost $14 billion to develop versus an onshore plan estimated uh, previously at 18 to $20 billion. Um, so Shell, obviously, they had enough. They, they want to leave. They want to get out of the project. And, um, and, and, and then it kind of stalled. And Japan's impacts, they weren't really pushing it too hard either because of the, the inflated costs of doing an onshore development. But in recent months, we have seen, um, I think, because of the geopolit the change in geopol geopolitics, sorry, in the world um, with the Russia aligning with China and Japan is part of G7, so kind of on the, the the other camp, the other side from Russia and China, and their their LNG investments in Russia have been, uh, I suppose, uh, at risk. So that there's that imp imp impetus, if that, if that's the right word, for for Tokyo to kind of push the Abadi project forward. And um, and here we are, but um, it's hard to see this project ever seeing the light of day. And and who knows what will happen if Indonesia does borrow eight hundred million to one billion dollars to buy out 
Shell share or Pertamina, if Pertamina buy it, I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge challenging project technically, commercially. Do you think that the Japanese would be keen to kind of go back to the original sort of FLNG plan? Is that, do you think that makes it more likely? I mean, obviously it would be kind of quicker to kind of get it moving, right? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I think that's been properly canned now. I mean, there mm. was hope that that might be revisited, but I think with all the problems at Prelude in Australia, which I think we've talked about before on the podcast, uh, F, you know, big size FLNG, uh, it, it's it's had a lot of problems. I mean, p- p- potentially they could do, I suppose, a string of smaller FLNG units like Petronas operates successfully off Malaysia. Maybe that's an idea. But the the problem is that the whole reason this project was pushed on shore was because powerful business people, political interests then got to make money from the, the pipelines and also snapping up all the land where it will get developed in, in eastern Indonesia. So that was the whole kind of undercurrent behind the decision. But now now and now and the project's gone nowhere. So you, you can see the pressure on the, the Indonesian president before his final term is up in 2024 to, to say, hey, I did get this project going, and um, but they need to find a buyer for Shell's stake to even have a chance of that. Is there any sense in terms of how the commerciality of the project has changed as as gas prices have shifted in recent months. I mean, as as you say, and I'm sure we've talked about this specific project in the podcast before, but it seems to be rolling on for such a long time that you would have thought the commodity shift would at least make some kind of dent in terms of how viable it is. It's a bit of a first base question, perhaps, but that's my this immediate thought thinking about it. Yeah, I think that yeah, it's a good point, very good point, and I, it occurred to me. That same thing, because previously it was you know, just didn't make commercial sense. The costs were far too high. But obviously now with I read a Bloomberg report yesterday saying spot LNG in Asia was changing hands for sixty dollars per million British thermal units. I mean, I mean this is just crazy to me. I was trying to think back. You know, it used to be under when I used to regularly report on LNG, it was like under. $20 per million British thermal unit. I mean, Ed, when we had the Fukushima disaster, I'm sure that that was like the high point around there. I mean, I could be wrong, but yeah, $60 per, per million. It's crazy. It's extreme, um, isn't it? So I think the price increase has helped, but then Impex reiterated in their results last week that there's no chance of a final investment decision on this project until the second half of the 2020s and first production in the early 2030s. And by then, I imagine the LNG market will be flooded with LNG were in a, be in a different part of the cycle after all these mega trains from Qatar projects in the US and elsewhere get started up. So, um, good question. I mean, the the most logical thing to do would be to pipe it to Northern Australia where there's existing export infrastructure, but pragmatism doesn't seem to prevail in <laughs> well any part of the world. It seems, but uh, yeah, and obviously it would be very difficult to send gas that's from Indonesia to be developed in Australia, but. Yeah, that would make commercial sense. It, it, it is. It is really striking, isn't it? How uh, I think you know. Obviously, oil used to be that kind of that kind of uh, more dynamically priced, and now LNG's kind of really taken over. And obviously, it's in such sort of high demand. And uh, you know, obviously, kind of coming back to that kind of discussion that we we're having in the in, in the first uh, part about about sort of UK gas prices. And that, you know, the idea about, you know, how long might a gas price cap need to need to be in existence, you know, will next year be better? And I mean, I'm, I, I, I mean, I'm, you know, kind of looking at the kind of the state of the LNG market, as, as Damon has said, and, and, and I don't see, you know, that next year being that much better. I mean, I think obviously we are seeing, you know, new supplies, as, as Damon has mentioned, you know, Qatar, obviously most significantly, but, you know, obviously the US as well is also kind of adding new volumes. 
But I just don't think it's enough, right? I don't think that it's enough to turn things around in next year or really pretty much even 2024. I mean, I think 2025 is really going to see the next kind of big chunk of sort of LNG kind of coming online. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's that it's that sort of difficulty, isn't it? Because there is such like a roller coaster ride in LNG prices. So obviously at the moment, very high. But go back two years, go back a year even, and LNG was like the bargain basement fuel. You know, people in Africa were saying, let's import LNG to, to, to generate power. You know, Ghana built an, an LNG import terminal. The idea that now that Ghana would ever import LNG when it's priced at, you know, $60 an MMBTU is just bonkers right it's never going to happen mm. and and it, it really needs sort of lower prices to, to you know kind of you know shift that thinking so yeah it's 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 it, i think the the nature of that cyclical price and the way in which that the price changes so much goes on to disrupt sort of long-term planning i would say and and you know obviously big projects like abadi are going to need those kind of long-term you know purchase agreements you know 10 years is probably going to be a minimum probably more like 20 years for a project of that scale and who's going to want to commit to that, right? Especially when combined with net zero commitments, right? Japan mm. is obviously kind of moving towards cutting emissions. Korea, obviously another big LNG importer, also making progress on that. So it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's at the, at the, at once, you know, the immediate need is for sort of spot, you know, LNG. But long-term LNG is, is, is much more challenging. Hmm, indeed, indeed. What, what's the what's the demand in the local market like, uh, Damon? Just before we finish up, there. I mean, is is are people crying out for this locally, uh, or would it indeed be kind of a mainly kind of long term exports kind of situation there? The bulk of this, I mean, this project's uh, um, nameplate capacity is like nine point five million tons per year um, production. So most of it would have to be exported, mainly because the local market can't afford to pay what what the export markets would pay uh there is that there is a desire to switch to more gas locally and there was a desire to start importing lng at one point but i think they messed up their demand forecasts and they're not going to be importing lng um and as i mentioned earlier there's a price cap on domestic gas prices which basically even puts uh, new upstream developments at at kind of there's no incentive for people to invest in the upstream at six dollars per million BTU we've just seen Repsol uh, struggle to get a development off the, a find off the ground after playing hard after the government played hardball and you know wanted to keep that price cap on so so the supply is not coming and, and again it comes down uh, you know I think you know it's politicians interfering and and then we have supply squeezed and then prices go up rather than encouraging supply to bring prices down. Very well, very well. Well, it sounds like uh, Abadi remains in a bit of uh, doldrums there, but we will, of course, uh, keep an eye on how that develops. And next up, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. It's a story of piracy and swashbuckling uh, from Ed in Africa. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. 
Look out for episodes of the Mega Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Ed, uh, yeah, it sounds a bit bonkers, really, um, but quite an interesting time for this tanker which fled Nigeria's navy. What is happening there? Well, indeed, it, there, there, there are a lot of uh, allegedly in this story. I'm going I'm to warn you ahead of sure. time. A lot of, <laughs> lot of people, as you can understand, being uh, unwilling to comment and certainly on record. So, what we know is that uh, a VLCC, which is you know obviously one of the sort of the biggest sort of oil tankers around the heroic Adun, uh, arrived in Nigeria on August the eighth, uh, uh, and it was heading towards a loading at a, a deep water field called Akpo, which is owned by France's Total Energies. The um, what what happened next is when things start to become slightly unclear. We, we, <laughs> so Total says it didn't load any crude, so that's uh, an an interesting point to start off with. But what we do know is that the Nigerian Navy then said, essentially, "Who are you? Why are you here? You know, do you have uh, the paperwork?" And it seems to be that uh, the VLCC's captain, rather than saying, yes, I had the paperwork, or indeed, uh, terribly sorry, I don't have the paperwork. Apologies, I, you know, I can see the error of my ways. Instead of doing either of those things, he turned tail and ran for it <laughs> uh, to scarpering across the high seas, uh, uh, seemingly setting course for Sao Tome, which is a sort of a, a, a nearby, uh, nearby island state to, uh, to, to Nigeria. Um, and in the old days, this might have worked, is the thing. Uh, so obviously, the Gulf of Guinea has had a long-term problem with uh, with piracy. And, 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 and so in the past, you know, the navies didn't communicate with each other. They, they sort of struggled to impose uh, any sort of order on, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of offshore maritime zones. But things have, things have changed. Uh, so the Nigerian Navy essentially, you know, sort of set off the alarm. Uh, and the, uh, the Navy of Equatorial Guinea intercepted this, uh, this, this runaway VLCC um, near one of their own islands and uh, essentially stopped the VLCC in its tracks and escorted it to, uh, to, to, to an island in, in Equatorial Guinea, where as of this morning at the time of recording, it is still, uh, still in, in captivity. So it, 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 was, uh, it, it arrived in Equatorial Guinea about the sort of, I think it was the 12th, um, 12th, 13th. And so now, obviously, there's a whole question about what happens next. So it seems that the reason that the VLCC, or at least the excuse the VLCC gave for, for running away from the Nigerian Navy was that they thought the Navy were actually pirates. So they set off an alarm. Was know. there a, was there a big black flag coming out? Exactly with uh, with a cutlass uh, and some uh, yes. and, and, and some cannons. Uh, so they set they, they they reported an alarm to the international uh, maritime body. Um, you know, essentially saying, you know, this is a you know pirate alert. You know, send help uh, as they ran. Um, which obviously is not really how the pirate reporting system is supposed to be working. That, you know, you shouldn't really use it to uh, describe people's navies as, as pirates. So, uh, and then, so there, there's also a question about, you know, so the Equatorial Guinea, uh, the, the vice president of Equatorial Guinea uh, described the ship as carrying illegal fuel. Which obviously is not a position that uh, the the chartering companies seem to take, uh, and obviously you know the idea that you know the VLCCs, the sort of you know the biggest ships in the world, you know that 
there's something like 300 meters long you know i mean these are real you know sort of giants of the sea would be involved in um you know oil theft in nigeria seems unlikely and obviously is one that you know the the, the kind of the owners would, would say is is obviously not happening but that you know obviously this sort of uh the way in which this has played out has really raised some concerns about the legitimacy of this ship being there and and, and obviously the response mm. so if you are legitimately loading uh, a cargo i would suggest either a have the right paperwork <laughs> and b don't run away when the cops turn yeah. up uh, because that makes you look as guilty as hell but there were pirates. Uh, yeah, okay. no, uh, it, that is that is mad, uh, really. So, so not to preempt any kind of follow up you may or may not do in the coming days. But, but as things stand, as we talk now, presumably the crew are being kind of held on the ship, arrested for all intents and purposes, uh, and I unclear as to when they may or may not be released. Is that is that more or less how we stand right now? That that does seem to be it, yeah. So so you know the captain and the crew. I think there's about twenty five crew, if 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 reports in the local press are to be believed. Uh, twenty five crew being held, um, you know, on this ship. Um, yeah, and 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 clearly no clarity about when it's going to go. I mean, I think so. The 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 char- uh, So the trader who's is kind of uh, handling it, Mercuria, is kind of still kind of you know uh, conf- seems to be confident. That the, the the ship will move on, which and obviously I'm sure that they have their reasons for saying that. My concern is that the vice president of Equatorial Guinea, who obviously is a position of some you know legislative presidential power, has described the ship as holding illegal fuel, which to me makes it sound like they're not going anywhere fast because obviously there's going to be an investigation, there are possibly charges, um, and I don't see. And then presumably also a question of jurisdiction, right? I mean, does the does Equatorial Guinea keep hold of this the ship and the crew? Does it go back to Nigeria? Does is there some sort of international body that might want to step in at this point? I I mean, I you know obviously uh, I, it's not a great position to be uh, uh, you know held in in custody in Equatorial Guinea um, mm-hmm. as you know we've as we've seen you know we've discussed in the past uh, you know the sort of the mercenaries who tried to to carry out the coup in Equatorial Guinea and, and ended up in prison and that wasn't a good situation but it, I I I'm not sure quite how quickly this situation can resolve. Yeah, uh, quite disconcerting, I'm sure, for for everyone in, involved. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have, and we have spoken on the podcast before about, I guess, uh, piracy in in that region, and and this, well, for all intents and purposes, appears to be a false report, one way or the other. Um, obviously, with the situation with the Nigerian Navy, I mean, what does that do? What what does that do for commerce in the region? Or I guess, indeed, the the reputation of the region too as 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 it goes forward i'm sure it's an issue that they're, they're trying to address quite seriously yeah yeah exactly so so there is uh, basically to 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 visit uh, the gulf of guinea cut ships have to pay a, 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 an insurance premium because it's seen as as, as high risk um i've seen some reports saying you know this is kind of you know this this might have added another sort of you know into the into the millions of dollars uh, of of you know in terms of friction for for, for trade last year so that is that is clearly a deterrent, and and obviously a sort of a false report at this point is is not going to help the reputation of uh, you know the area. I mean, particularly you know given that the IMB then did say you know this is you know there's a piracy attack in the region. You know, ships beware. You know, there's 
So that that is certainly not helping. And I think, you know, clearly there is a kind of a concern on that point. And, you know, obviously, I mean, I spoke there was a, there was an academic at St. Andrews who was who was saying, you know, that you know, the numbers are down. The insurance premiums really should follow suit. Right. I mean, I think there is the kind of a question about the extent to which this insurance premium is still valid. You know, given that the IMB has said, you know, the piracy numbers are down, that the crime is down in the area. You know, surely it's time for change. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, there is there is a kind of there are kind of questions within that. Uh, do all uh, events uh, of, of sort of offshore crime get reported to the IMB? Uh, to what extent is, you know, it may, it may or may not still be valid? Uh, I think you know, there, there are obviously still kind of questions around security in the area. But in general, it, it, it does seem to be improving. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, really, I suppose, you know, the, the kind of what you could see from this is, is actually how well navies are now working together, right? I mean, I think, you know, as I said, you know, that in the past, cooperation has not been great. But now we're seeing that change. And I think also, it's quite promising in terms of sort of future developments. So I mean, I think, you know, Nigeria has offshore gas that it's not been able to develop uh it you know the, the pipelines will be essentially too long to bring it on shore flng as obviously damon has said is is still a bit of a sort of a, a bit of a rare solution and one of the opportunities that has been talked about is maybe piping that gas to equatorial guinea so i think you know sort of a warming relationship here between equatorial guinea uh, and nigeria and the other the other the other countries in the region is is, is quite promising so that is a that is a, that is a positive note not a positive note, though, obviously, for the crew of the heroic Idun. Mm. Who knows how long they may be staying in Equatorial Guinea. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Damon, you're really quiet over there. Have you had any brushes with pirates <laughs> in the past? Not personally. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we used to have an issue in Asia, in the Straits of Malacca, I think. and in Indo- Actually, it's quite difficult to get insurance for, for boats in Indonesia because of the pirates. There's a lot of pirates in Indonesia. Um, but I think the oil tankers and stuff you pretty pretty it's it's improved the security's improved over here as well i think in in the past well, i couldn't help thinking of like a scooby-doo story <laughs> as as ed was relating that at the beginning like having like yeah. like unsolved Fake mystery pirates, yeah. and uh, they <laughs> yeah and they pull the bag off the villain's <laughs> head in the end well maybe on the next pod <laughs> uh, well, that's a that's a big promise to make but ed you're gonna have to uh to live up to that and, and give a step it up our Scooby-Doo story for the next one. Right, well, uh, like the tanker, the Navy of, of Equatorial Guinea have uh, brought us to our close, to our stop. Uh, and with that, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you to Ed and to Damon for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.